Well, I greet you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is wonderful to be here at Grace Church of the Valley. Mary and I are thrilled to be here. It's wonderful to be here with uh, your beloved pastor, Scott Artavanis, and so many others. I, I, my, the danger is when I get started, I can't stop uh, because of gratitude. So Mary and I have been married, uh, soon will be 36 years. We spent, uh, soon will be 26 years at Southern Seminary. And someone asked me a, a question last week. They said, well, what? What, what did the Lord give you together in the, uh, in the midst of all these years uh, that you'd particularly want us to know you are thankful to God for? And uh, I said it will be the friends that the Lord has brought into our lives, friends in the gospel, friends in the word, friends in the ministry, friends, uh, friends in the great calling. And uh, I look to all of you in this church and say, if you're a part of this church or any church like this church, you're you're among those friends. But intimately, to get to know so many people, uh, you know what I mean when I tell you that there are certain people you like less as you are around them more. (laughs) Now, you, you might not want to put it that way, but over time you learn there are just certain people you like better at a distance uh, than up close. I want to tell you the really happy thing, by God's grace, is that the closer I get to you, uh, the closer I get to the wonderful families in this church, the closer I get to the pastoral leadership of this church, the more I want to be with you, and the more thankful I am every opportunity I have uh, to be with you. I'm particularly honored this morning to preach behind this pulpit uh, I, uh, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm big on pulpits. The bigger the pulpit, the better. Uh, I am the only preacher you will ever meet who has been seriously injured in a pulpit. I was preaching, uh, and uh, I got to preach in Luther's high pulpit uh, at uh, the Slosskirche, there where so much of the Reformation took place about a year ago. Uh, however, it was, uh, it was several years ago, it was right after 9-11, I was preaching in a Presbyterian church, uh, the, the Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. If you've ever seen it on television, it's this magnificent cathedral-like building, and it's got a high pulpit, and uh, it also has a gap between where the preacher sits and where the pulpit is, which I did not see, and I broke my ankle trying to get to the pulpit which is not a good Lord's Day uh, for the preacher. I, I, by the way, I was able to preach, and, and the Lord took care of me, but uh, I'm still for big pulpits. <laughs> I, we, we dedicated a new pulpit in the seminary chapel just uh, several months ago, and I, I actually gave an extended defense of pulpits, uh, especially a lot of young preachers. I mean, in a lot of these churches that look kind of cool, and by the way, I don't care as much about the furniture as I do about the preaching of the Word of God, okay? But there's a reason why the furniture is not accidental. The Puritans referred to a pulpit as a sacred desk. And th- there's a history here. I think you already know it, but forgive me. The historical theologian in me cannot but talk about this for a moment partly because of the sheer mass of this beautiful pulpit. I feel, I'm going to preach from the Old Testament, and I feel Old Testament at the moment. I feel like I should sacrifice some animal uh, on this pulpit, on this altar, and let its blood drip down down the sides as a sign of the remission of sins, but we're not an Old Testament people. There is no altar in this building. What remains for us after the perfect sacrifice of Christ on an altar in the shape of a cross is a sacrifice of praise that centers in the preaching of the Word of God. And thus, it is right that there be a massive desk for this to take place, because this is the weightiest business human beings can take up, the weightiest calling. And uh, I'm just thrilled, pastor, to stand behind this pulpit and to see the words, preach the word, be ready in season and out 
reprove, rebuke, exhort, in case of earthquake, hide underneath. <laughs> I, <laughs> I think it would work. I want to ask you to turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6. And uh, I, I was, uh, in preparation to, to coming to be with you, I was encouraged to speak about the challenge of Christian families showing the glory of God and raising Christian children in, in the midst of this very challenging cultural moment. And, and one of the most important things about Scripture is that when we ask a question like that, we are often driven far back in Scripture to be reminded of the fact that this is not a new challenge for the people of God. It's not a new challenge. It, it's actually a very old challenge. It's a persistent challenge. It's a challenge until Jesus comes. But it's a challenge for which we are not only forewarned, we are forearmed in Scripture. And so you're wondering, which portion of Deuteronomy chapter 6? The answer is, all of it. Hear now the Word of God. Now this is the commandment, the statutes, and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant, and when you eat and are full, then take care, lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt." out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you, for the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God, lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massah, you shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies and his statutes which he has commanded you. And you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord that it may go well with you and that you may go in and take possession of the good land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers by thrusting out all of your enemies from before you as the Lord has promised. When your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. This is God's word. Deuteronomy chapter 6. Included in Deuteronomy chapter 6 is the most famous verse in the memory of Israel. Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 4, it is referred to as the Shema in the same way that John 3.16 functions as perhaps 
the most familiar verse encapsulating the gospel for Christians. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him might not perish but have everlasting life. It's Deuteronomy 6.4 that functions this way in the life of Israel. Hear, O Israel, Shema. The Hebrew word is hear. Thus they call this verse the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. What's happening in the book of Deuteronomy? I mean, it, it, it even has a strange name, Deuteronomy. That's deuteronomos in the, in the meaning of the words, the second giving of the law. It's, it's Latin, and it comes down to us in this way. The second giving of the law. So where's the first giving of the law? Well, that was, that was at the mountain. The, that, that, that's in Exodus 20. That's the first giving of the law. In the history of Israel, that's when God, to Moses and through Moses to the people, gave his commandments known as the Ten Commandments, and then all of the law that followed. That's Exodus chapter 20. So why is there a second giving of the law? Why the book of Deuteronomy, this massive book, the last book of the Pentateuch, the first five books of Scripture, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Why Deuteronomy? Why a second giving of the law? And you'll remember, it is because of the rebellion of the children of Israel in the wilderness. It is because God said unto them that that generation would pass from the face of the earth before their children and their children's children would be the generations to inherit the land of promise. The generation that rebelled in the wilderness would never enter into the land of promise. Forty years of wandering in the wilderness until that generation had died out. That generation has not yet fully died by the time we come to Deuteronomy. But their children are now in adulthood. Those who had been the little ones described earlier in Deuteronomy those who were the little children at the time of the rebellion, they are now parents. And their children are with them going to enter the land of promise. There are grandparents who are not going to enter the land of promise because they were a part of the generation that rebelled. When God gave Moses what Moses gave by the Holy Spirit to the people of God in the book of Deuteronomy, it's this giant hinge in the history of Israel. They are about to take possession of the land of promise. It's the last word, Moses, who himself will not lead the children of Israel into the land of promise. Rather, as you know, that will be Joshua. This is the last word God is speaking through Moses to his people. And Deuteronomos, the second giving of the law, comes down to what happens in the opening chapters of the book of Deuteronomy. Just look back and you can see exactly what takes place. The law is given again. And, and you see this in, in, in chapter 4 and following. And then you see this in chapter 5 where the Ten Commandments are recapitulated. And Israel is reminded how all of this came to be. Look at Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 4. Moses says, do you remember? Do you remember? He says, look at verse 4. No, look at verse 3. Your eyes have seen what the Lord did at Baal Peor, for the Lord your God destroyed from among you all the men who followed in the Baal Peor. But you who held fast to the Lord your God are still alive today. See, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for this will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who when they hear all these statutes will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. You see, when we think of, uh, this tells us something about our, our modern rebellion against God, authority, law. 
You go up to the average American these days and say, I, I, I've got more rules for you. The average American says, I don't want any more rules. I'm trying to get rid of as many rules as possible. Part of the great modern rebellion that marks the culture around us is an attempt to try to erase the rules, the most basic structures and rules. But notice what Israel's told here. Israel's told here that other peoples of the earth are going to be jealous, envious of the laws that Israel has because Israel's laws are going to be so just. Israel's laws are going to be so holy. Israel's laws are going to be so wholesome that other peoples, that's exactly what we just read here, they're going to say when they hear these statutes, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. Verse 7, for what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today. It's just simply amazing. Look later in Deuteronomy chapter 4. Look at verse 32 and following. For ask now of the days that are past, which were before you, since the day that God created man on the earth, and ask from one end of heaven to the other whether such a great thing as this has ever happened or was ever heard of. Did any people ever hear the voice of a God speaking out of the midst of the fire, as you have heard? And still live? It's, it's amazing. This is the miracle of divine revelation. And, and, and it's here even in the giving of the law. Israel is being asked, do, do you remember what happened? God spoke to you. That's how we know we're God's people. God didn't speak to the other peoples. He spoke to us. This is how we know we're in covenant with this covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. It's because he spoke to us. He gave us these perfect laws. He gave us these precious commands. Other peoples of the earth, they live in anarchy, and they, they sacrifice their babies on altars. They, they do all these things in their vanity, but God loves us so much. He speaks to us. The statutes and the commandments, the testimonies and the law, these are God's gifts. Has any other people heard the voice of God speaking from the midst of the fire and survived? Israel got to hear the voice of God speaking from the midst of the fire and survived. And you see, here's the thing. We're living in the midst of people who don't want to hear from God. They don't want to hear from God. They don't want to hear from God the thou shalls and the thou shalt nots. They, they, they don't want to hear that because that's a restriction on human autonomy. That's a, that, that, that's a constraint upon human freedom. We declare our autonomy. We declare our liberty. No one has the right to tell us, you shall do this and you shall not do that. Well, that's, that's not a modern rebellion. That's a perennial rebellion. That's the rebellion of Korah as found in the Old Testament. That's the rebellion of Israel in the wilderness. That's the rebellion of every two-year-old who discovers the word no. This is a human rebellion. We do not want to be told, you do this, you don't do that. But Moses is here reminding the people of God, we only have those commandments because God loves us so much. He loves us enough to tell us the truth. He loves us enough to protect us from ourselves. He loves us enough to choose us from amongst all the other nations so that his laws and his commandments will become the jealousy of every other nation. The laws that are just, the laws that reflect human dignity, the laws that under, undergird the sanctity of human life, the, the laws that, 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 that honor the family and honor marriage, the laws that lead to human flourishing and, 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 and human well-being by the right ordering of society. God loves us so much, he gave us these laws and these statutes. If I were to choose a title for my message today, it would be How Not to Raise a Pagan. How Not to Raise a Pagan. Let's just say 
that the title of the message insinuates that we do not want to raise pagans. And this is where we also have to understand that given the Christian biblical understanding of sin, we never do have to raise our children to be pagans. They are born cute, little pagans. We never have to teach a child, given the reality of sin, how to disobey. I've never known a father who had to sit his son down and say, son, you're an amateur sinner. We've got to get better at this. I'm ashamed. I'm ashamed at the level of your disobedience. It's just, it, it's amateurish. It's, uh, that's never happened. That has never happened. You do not have to raise your children to be pagans. The world is trying its best to raise your children to be pagans. And, and not just that. You have to remember the historic context of Israel. Why is Israel receiving this instruction now? Why Deuteronomy now? It is because at this hinge in Israel's history, they are about to enter into the land of promise. What is that land of promise? A land flowing with milk and honey. What's it called? It's called Canaan. Who lives there? Canaanites. They're entering a land filled with pagans. So what's the big concern here? God speaks through Moses, his prophet, to say, here's the deal. If you are not in every way constantly concerned, if you do not in every way inculcate the law of God in the hearts of your children, then they are going to enter Canaan and they are going to become Canaanites. You are entering into a land of paganism and they are going to become pagan if you do not teach your children. Discipline them according to the word of God. Teach the word of God to them diligently. It's all right here in this passage. It's in Deuteronomy chapter 6. I want you to notice, though, in Deuteronomy chapter 4, before we leave it, it was already there. Look at verse 9. Only take care and keep your soul diligently. We're going to see that word diligently appear again and again and again. Keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and to your children's children. How on the day that you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, the Lord said to me, make them known to your children and to your children's children. That's the entire context of Deuteronomy chapter 6 where we come back to the commandment. After the, the, the re-giving of the law, after the, the repetition, the re-giving of the Ten Commandments, which was the, the, the summary of the law, the great ten words, these ten words, the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, the central instruction to Israel. And Israel is told to give attention to three specific responsibilities in Deuteronomy chapter 6. And we as the church, as the New Testament people, we are the inheritors of all that God said and gave to Israel. Earlier in the session, in the earlier hour, I talked about this just a little bit. I wrote a book on the Ten Commandments years ago, and I've had I've had some well-meaning Christians ask me, why did you write a book on the Ten Commandments? Well, throughout the history of the Christian church, there's been a tripod of, uh, of, of Christian teaching. And uh, it's been uh, the Lord's Prayer, that was my most recent book, and the Ten Commandments, and the Apostles' Creed, just, as wherever, just, just wherever, it's been, wherever you found Christianity, uh, right through the Reformation, you found those, those three in, instructions. I, I wrote on the Ten Commandments, and I had some well-meaning Christians. They would come up to me and say, but we're the people of grace, not the people of law. We, we shouldn't teach the law. And I'm thinking, yes, but you do it all the time. Um, Christ gave us a law. By the way, Christ drills the law deeper than the Old Testament law. Christ's people, and remember, we're, we're called to make disciples, teaching them to obey all that Christ commanded. And Christ's commandments are not a decrease of the Old Testament. 
Jesus didn't say, you've heard, thou shalt not murder. I'm saying it's not such a big deal. He said, no, you've heard it said, thou shalt not murder. But if you even have anger in your heart, you are already a murderer. Jesus didn't say, oh, this commandment about adultery, that, that's, that's kind of negotiable. He said, look, not only have you heard it said, you, you shall not commit adultery, but I'm telling you that if you have ever looked upon a woman with lust, you've already committed adultery. Now, the whole gospel is not the fact that we can forget the law. Jesus himself said in the Sermon on the Mount, not one jot, not one tittle of this law, not one word of this law will pass until all is fulfilled. Who fulfilled it? He did. He did. So thankfully, the law, as Paul says, slays us. It doesn't save us. Christ saves us. The law no longer has the ability for those of us who are in Christ to condemn us. But Jesus didn't say, hey, now no rules. He said, okay, I have perfectly fulfilled the law. Now here is my law for you. That we're the inheritors of this passage and of this responsibility, the same responsibility that Israel's parents have, we have. I mentioned earlier that Martin Luther, the great reformer, said, said you know, I don't want to teach the law because I, I only want to teach the gospel. And as I pointed out, that worked until he had children, at which point he discovered life is not going to work without thou shalt's and thou shalt nots. Three words I want us to see in this passage, and uh, I'm going to summarize it this way. Doctrine, discipline, and diligence. How not to raise pagans. Doctrine, discipline, and diligence. They are all here. First of all, doctrine. And you say, well, this, is a, this doesn't appear to be a passage as heavy in doctrine as some other passage. This isn't like the book of Romans. Uh, this isn't like the gospel of John. Uh, this is not like the book of Genesis. Where's the doctrine here? Well, the doctrine's everywhere here. In fact, the central doctrinal verse of all of Israel's experience is right here in this text in Deuteronomy chapter 6. As we've seen in verse 4, notice what it says. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Monotheism and exclusivity. Right here is the central claim of the entire Old Testament reduced to one verse. There is a God, there is only one God, and that one God is one. There is a God, and there is only one God, and that God is one. That's monotheism, only one God. You're going into a land filled with idols. You have left a land in Egypt filled with idols. All around you are people who worship not only a God, but gods, gods of fertility and gods of power, gods of wealth and gods of battle. And, 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 and the worship of those gods is so grotesque, it's almost impossible to believe. Molech, as we have mentioned, was a god to which the ancient Canaanites sacrificed their children breaking the leg bones of children ages two and under in order to placate the wrath of this idol by believing that if they sacrificed a child they claimed was innocent before the child had even reached age two, putting them in a furnace, breaking their leg bones so that they could not crawl out of the fire. Just think of the horror of this. And then you had the Baals, B-A-A-L, Americans tend to mess up diphthongs. They just make it bail. Well, whatever you want to call him, he's a horrible figure, a god of power in battle, a god placated with the blood of all, not only of animals, but of human beings, and a, a, a god of power, that worship of which was grotesque. And then the, 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 the female deities, the Astaroth, they were just horrible, fertility goddesses. Fertility is really important. It's, it's important for human beings. One of the glories of walking in this room this morning was seeing that the Lord's blessed you in that way. As a people, that's really sweet. That's the Lord's blessing. But we know that, right? It did. It's not just biology, it's God's blessing. And, 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 and so many here are involved in agriculture. Thank you for feeding us and showing God's glory in that. It, it matters whether or not the seed turns into a plant that bears fruit. 
and its own seed in due order. That all matters. And, and that requires water. It requires nourishment. It requires a lot of things that the ancient Canaanites believed that they would bring by the sacrifices and, and horrible worship, including sexual worship, they called it, which is made very clear in the Old Testament that what was needed was some kind of temple prostitution in order to celebrate fertility that would bring about the rain and the opening of the womb and the, and the, the, the young in the herd. And then if going into battle, you needed Baal. And of course, Baal was also tied to fertility because there's a male God and there's a female God and it's very grotesque. And if you read 1 Kings 18 and, and Elijah and the battle of the gods, it makes perfect sense when you realize they think Baal can answer with rain because his voice is the thunder. It's just, it's just absolute nonsense. And remember what those pagan priests did in 1 Kings 18. Well, that's after they're in Canaan. This is before they go into Canaan. Moses, God is using Moses in order to warn the children of Israel, your children are going into Canaan, which is my land of promise that I've given to them as the promise to their, their forefathers, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. But if you do not do what I'm going to tell you to do, then they will go into Canaan only to become Canaanites. Well, brothers and sisters, my point is this, and you figured it out already. Whatever advice or command that God gave to his children through Moses going into Canaan is what we need right now, living in an increasingly pagan society, lest our own children become pagans living in a pagan land. The default living in Canaan was to be a Canaanite. The default in an increasingly pagan culture is to raise children who become pagans. The, the, the temptation, the, the, the automatic demand being made of, of us is that we raise our children however we want, only to hand them over to the powers that be. Sometime back in writing a book, I cited an article written by a professor at a Northwestern University, Seattle, in which the professor was talking about the fact that uh, they need red states to produce children or, or red areas in blue states. In other words, more socially liberal areas, they don't have many kids. More socially conservative areas, they have kids. The problem is those conservative areas having conservative kids are raised by conservative parents who tend to show up on university campuses as conservative. Now, this professor said, don't worry about it. This is what he said. He said, let those conservative parents raise those children. Let them, get, let them have them for 17 or 18 years but then let him pack him up, drive the SUV up to the curb of my campus, let the kid out, and then he's mine. Folks, they're counting on it. They're counting on the fact that we just raise them, feed them, and then turn them over to the powers that be. What's it going to take not to do that? Well, it's going to take something like it would take for ancient Israel to go into Canaan and not have their children and their grandchildren become Canaanites. Doctrines, number one. We saw that doctrine right there, and, and that reminds us, and it's all throughout this. This is, this is the entire law of God. The law of God is not just thou shalt and thou shalt not. It's filled with doctrine. It's filled with the teachings about the one true and living God. Here's the bottom line. Your children will be pagan. Your grandchildren will be pagan unless they've got a lot of doctrine. They've got to have a lot of Christian knowledge. They've got to have a lot of Christian knowledge. They're going to have to not only know truths about God revealed in Scripture, they're going to have to have a better understanding than their grandparents had or even their parents had to have about how Christian doctrines interrelate and are connected to one another. They're going to have to develop not only a knowledge of doctrine and, 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 and the reality of God, they're going to have to learn how to think doctrinally because if they do not think doctrinally, then it doesn't matter how many supposed facts about God they have in their minds. If they cannot connect them to the big questions of life, then it just goes away. So unapologetically, parents raising children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord have to teach them doctrine. They have to know who God is and who he is not. They have to know how to recognize the one true and living God. They have to understand how to explain the gospel. They have to understand what it means. 
what it means that God is sovereign. They have to understand what it means that God is holy. They have to understand what it means that God is omnipotent and omniscient. They have to understand what it means that God has spoken to us in Scripture. They have to understand the Scripture. They're going to have to be deeply, deeply knowledgeable about the Word of God. I, I, I spoke about this some time ago and uh, using categories that I, I, I hope really help to understand, and that is the difference between thick and thin. So just, if you don't need a lot of theological vocabulary for a moment, just stick with me with thick and thin, okay? Thick and thin as ways of talking about the amount of knowledge we have. There was a time when our society basically followed the same rules that we do. They, they affirm the same rules. The, the adultery is sin. Murder is wrong. Uh, babies must be protected in the womb. Life is sacred from the beginning. Marriage is the union of a man and a woman. Uh, morality is something that is given. We come to terms with morality. Morality has not come to terms with us. There was a time when the society basically operated by those rules. And then Christians got away with a fairly thin knowledge of the truth. Because they didn't have to defend it all the time. They didn't have to, they didn't have to correct the, the ways of the thinking of the society around us all the time. And, and, and so they could get by with thin. You can't get by with thin anymore. Thin is going to evaporate like the fog in the morning. You've got to have thick. Thick means big truth. Thick means lots of teaching. Thick means, well, Deuteronomy chapter 6. It means understanding our kids are going to have to leave our homes with thick Christianity, or it will quickly be revealed as no Christianity. And that means lots of doctrine. It means all the truths of God's Word. They're, they're, they're going to have to be deeply instilled in Christian truth. Doctrine. The second is discipline. Without any apology, Israel is told that morally it must live differently than the other peoples. That's the whole point of the Ten Commandments. The whole point of Moses saying, has any other people heard the voice of God speaking from the midst of the fire and survived? God gave us these you shalls and you shall nots. And guess what? They are not some kind of prison into which we've been put. They are the rules that will lead to flourishing, happiness, wholeness. Wouldn't you think, by the way, that evidence to the contrary would be interesting? Just consider our society and what it's done to marriage. Here you have a biblical, God's perfect display of his intention in creation for marriage. And, and you see here, his intention in creation for marriage. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cling to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And, and then they, and there's to be a monogamous, faithful union. Thou shalt not commit adultery. And then, and then given the, the, the laws against divorce, given the fact that this, that this molecule of civilization, the man and the woman married together, they are to stay together, is to be sexually exclusive, it is to be marked by faithfulness. Wouldn't you think that when that's destroyed and it leads to chaos, someone would notice? And we're in a society that, that, that actually now celebrates adultery and, and, and redefines it, that wants to say nobody gets to say what marriage is, nobody gets to say anything. There is no God, so none of this is given. It's all just socially constructed. We just came up with this. If we came up with it, we can come up with it a different way. And look at what's happening. We've got children abandoned. This hasn't led to human happiness. It hasn't led to human wholeness. It's led to a meltdown of civilization. Have you noticed that the children of this moral revolution don't appear to appreciate the revolution? Israel was told this in advance. You, you, you better understand there's a moral discipline required of the people of God. And again, Christians sometimes want to say, we're the people of grace, not the people of law. But Jesus said, teaching them to obey all that I have This is the law of God written in creation. It's the law of God given in the Ten Commandments. It's the law of God Christ gave unto his church. This isn't the laws and we're saved by it. It's that God's saved people, saved by grace alone, are loved by God enough that he doesn't leave us on our own. Moral teachings and discipline. This is the this is other part. Israel's parents are told to discipline their children. 
And, and, and when people hear discipline, they often think, first of all, of punishment. And by the way, you can't discipline without punishment. That's also a very clear biblical teaching. You have, a modern, you have modern people who, it reminds me of the Prince of, uh, of the Duke of Windsor, excuse me, you know, one, one of the most regrettable, forgettable people in human history. He was Edward VIII, and you know, you talk about adultery and all the rest. I mean, what a moral mess. He'd been the king of England, and he gave it up to marry a woman who already had two living ex-husbands, and it's just a horrible thing. So he's reduced to being the Duke of Windsor. He's a complete mess. But he came to the United States shortly after the abdication, and he was, said, he was asked, he said, what do you think about Americans? And he said, oh, they're amazing people. He said, the parents are so obedient to their children. <laughs> Even someone as messed up as the Duke of Windsor could recognize there's something wrong with that. But discipline in the biblical frame means, first of all, teaching. That's what it means, making disciples. So, this is what, you know, Jesus said to the church, we are to be going into all the nations to make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So we know the church's responsibility is to make disciples, not just to make converts, but to make disciples. So Christian parents' responsibility is not just to make children, but to make disciples of their children. Now, we're not given total control over the hearts of our children as much as we want it, but it ought to be a situation in which that child knows by confrontation with the gospel and of the scripture what the truth is, who the one living God is, who Christ is, what Christ has done for us, what the gospel is. And so long as they're under our control, they are disciplined according to the law of God, without apology. Now, you realize how contrary that runs to the logic of the world, but it's right here in this text. We read it, and, and, and we read it in unmistakable terms. We read it in not only the promise and not only the command, we see it in the warning. Look at verse 16. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him in Massah. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies and his statutes which he has commanded you, and you shall do what is right and good. Do you not understand? This is not moral relativism. He didn't say, go into Canaan and figure it out for yourself. He said, I've given you the rules once. I'm giving you the law a second time. And when you go into the land of promise, you better raise your children according to this law. You shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may go well with you. By the time you get to the end of the book of Deuteronomy, Moses repeats what God has said. When the Lord says, see, I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Choose life and live. Let me just tell you, if you're parenting and you haven't had one of those moments yet, it's coming. There's, there's a time when godly parents have to look at their children and say, see, I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse, therefore choose life and live. You know what I mean. You know what I mean. This isn't a threat to their physical life. It is a threat to the powers of the age. You belong to me, not to the world. You're under my authority, not their authority. I am God's instrument to make clear his law. Choose life and live. I've set before you blessing and curse. The third word is diligence, and it really comes up again and again, and it's not just a kind of general diligence like be diligent always to do the right thing. It's diligence as in teach the word of God to your children. Notice what he says here. The easiest place to pick it up is going back to verse 4 again. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your might. And these words, words, specific words, not these moral attitudes, not the be happy attitudes, these words that I command you today, not that I suggest to you, not that I submit for your consideration, these words that I, your God, command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to, their, to your children. You'll notice Deuteronomy 4, we saw the same thing, diligently. You are to teach your children and your children's children diligently. Have you ever noticed that you have to repeat yourself to your children? Have you ever noticed that saying things once is not fully effective? Have you ever noticed that saying things once without a context of truth, doctrine, doesn't work? Have you ever noticed that saying things once without the context of discipline doesn't work? Have you ever, heard, have you ever realized that when you say things once, 
You may not even be heard. Now, remember, this is Deuteronomy. This is the second giving of the law. This is God, our Heavenly Father, who loves us so much that He gave the Ten Commandments twice to the same people. And he repeats his law over and over and over and over and over again. You realize that parents are called to do that? And just in case we missed the point, look at what he says here. He says, you shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way. Okay, that means whatever you're doing. Because you're either sitting or standing. I mean, generally. I guess the only time you don't have to be teaching your children is when you are in bed. Flat. And by the way, if you drill God's word into their hearts, God teaches them while they sleep. And you sleep. But while you're sitting or while you're standing, which means every waking hour, you're to be teaching your children. Now you say, I got other things to do. I got to bake bread. Well, yeah, you do. You got to raise, you got to till the soil. You got to raise a crop. You got to feed the animals. Yes, but that's all teaching. Mary and I do have the joy of having a three-year-old and uh, I got to get this right, I'm in trouble, like eight or nine-month-old grandsons. Huh? Eight, yeah, thank you. I'll just tell you that's why God made grandmothers because grandfathers, so you got two of them. Uh, <laughs> grandmothers remember all the specifics, but let me tell you, God's glory is in it. It makes me the happiest thing. I have people come to me and say, I've never seen you so happy as when your, grand, your, your grandchildren. Well, that's absolutely right. Bring them back to me. But you look at this and, and, and you just realize God's glory in all of this. You know, when, when, no matter what you're doing, you're teaching. And, and thankfully, our, our grandsons have two wonderful Christian parents. And that, that's what you do. You just, we just see it all the time. When Katie's cooking in the kitchen, she's teaching them all the time. When she's cutting up little stuff on their tray, for one of them yet, and she's teaching them all the time. When, when, when they're out and about teaching all the time, Riley, her husband, is teaching all the time. Mary and I watch these little videos when we can't be with them, and here's, he, he, here's the dad teaching Benjamin to sing, Do Lord, O oh, Do Lord, or Do Remember Me. That's not a great gospel hymn, by the way. <laughs> but it's just, it's just watching the little boy's eyes as just the language of Christianity gets drilled, drilled, you know, gets drilled into his heart. Uh, down in my heart, where? Down in my heart, Where? Down in my heart to stay. You just look at that and go, that's the way it is. That, that, that's diligence. And that's teaching. And that's discipline. It's all together. It's seamless. Parents don't say, hey, I'm going to be diligent today. I'll be doctrinal tomorrow. And we'll discipline the third day. Guess what? You're going to end up disciplining the first day. Because if your kids figure out this in every third day kind of thing, days two and three are going to be Hades on earth. No, you got to put all this together. you got to put all this together. And, and here's the secret to parenting. And, and you watch me test this. Those of you who are parents, as soon as you start parenting, your parents make a whole lot more sense. <laughs> and you begin to wonder, how did I ever live uh, to adulthood? No, in all seriousness, you, you, you're, you're parents. But God takes on a whole, the gospel takes on a whole new light, doesn't it? You're, you're dealing with your children and you think, what in the world gets into that kid's mind? How, how, how dare that child ever not obey every word of my voice? How could it be that that child would not see the infinite wisdom of her parents? And then you read Deuteronomy and you go, oh my goodness, that's the way God looks at us. All the time. Deuteronomy chapter 6. Notice the danger. And and here's here's something that's very timely for us as we come to a conclusion. When do things get rough? When when is the greatest danger? Is the greatest danger when the church is persecuted? No. When the church is persecuted, it figures out what the truth is it's going to die by. Okay? Is the greatest danger when the church is poor? No, when you don't have anything but the Word of God, there's no distraction. No, the danger is when you think things are good and safe. Notice, beginning in verse 10, 
And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build and houses full of all good things that you did not fill and cisterns that you did not dig and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant and when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. You shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after the other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you, for the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God, lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. I know some of you in the history of your own families, it's a a history that's also of my family. People who lived through the Great Depression don't take anything for granted. People who've experienced poverty understand if they are now out of poverty, what a work ethic looks like. People who've lost everything understand everything in light of a very different experience than the people who've never wanted for anything. You know, I'm just saying this. I I think this is important for you as a church. This is the first time I've had the opportunity to preach in this fantastic facility, and I'm so thankful for it. And by the way, this is God's gift to you for ministry, not only here in Kingsburg, but but as Pastor Artavana said, throughout the entire valley. I don't want to know you're an encouragement. (laughs) You're an encouragement internationally but watch your children and your grandchildren because they're going to think this is normal they're going to think this just happened tell them the story of how God brought you out of Egypt into a land of promise how God's promise was that if you started a church that would live by the preaching of the word God would honor the preaching of the word if you if you started a church that that held to the gospel God would honor that gospel, and, and then say, this didn't happen. These are cisterns that you didn't dig. They're, they're wells that, 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 that you did not dig. This is, they're vineyards that you didn't plant. But God's faithfulness, why, does it, why is there any of this? It's God's faithfulness. The danger comes when we think we deserve all of this, and our children actually think they deserve better. That's when disaster comes. The only antidote is doctrine and discipline and diligence, which is what God called his children going into Canaan to do. And Christ calls his church to do and more because we are also the people of the gospel, the people who have the responsibility even to let good and kindred go for the sake of the extension of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What's required of us is more than was required of Israel, not less. So looking to what was required of Israel is at the very least a good place to start unless we intend for our children in Canaan to become Canaanites.